0: We've already heard readings from Matthew and Mark, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, and then we're going to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. I, I want you to hear, I want all of us to hear all of these historical accounts this morning. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 through 12 says, but on the first day of the week, At early dawn they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only and went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. And then John's Gospel, chapter twenty. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Peter, Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Father, as we contemplate these words this morning, as we think about the 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 beautiful significance of the resurrection, we ask that you would teach us. We ask that your word would penetrate our hearts, strengthen our faith, convict us of our need for a Savior if we don't know you, and strengthen those who do, that we would find all of our confidence, all of our strength, all of our endurance in the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, the, the four accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ are presented not as religious literature, but as historical fact. They're presented as four historical narratives. We can see some pretty significant details. We see women coming to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body for burial. They came with spices. They were coming with other ointments. Uh, in, in that day and age when a Jewish person died, their body was washed, it was covered pretty thickly with ointments and spices and then it was wrapped tightly in a shroud, it was placed in a, in a tomb in a niche and for a year or so decayed. And then the family would come back after about a year. They would remove the, the, what remained. They would clean the remaining material off of the bones. And then they would place the bones in a what's called an ossuary, a bone box that was maybe 24 inches long and 12 inches by 12 inches. And then that would be placed in a, a niche. The women coming to anoint Jesus' body are not coming to celebrate his resurrection. They thought he was dead. In fact, one of the Gospels says that as they were on the way, they were asking, Who's going to roll this stone away for us? This is actually a fairly good depiction. The the entrance into the tomb itself might have been three feet high and two feet wide, and there would have been a, a stone of limestone or granite, maybe six inches thick, usually cut into a circle that could be rolled away. It was cut into a circle because that much stone would weigh hundreds and hundreds of pounds, maybe as close to a thousand pounds. And the women say, how are we going to get into this? And when they get there, they find that the stone is rolled away, and they see angels who have the appearance of men. We're given the names of the women who were there. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, who is also called Mary the mother of James the Less, and uh, of James and Joseph. We see Mary the wife of Clopas, Mary the mother of James and John. Uh, Joanna is mentioned. She was probably the wife of one of Herod's officials, which is an interesting idea. A woman named Salome, and some are unnamed and they they see it and they experience it as a as a historical moment it's taking place right before them they run back to tell Jesus disciples Jesus disciples don't believe only Peter and John can even be bothered to go investigate and and they are i think it's fair to say they're going to investigate who has desecrated the ga- the grave they're going to see if they can find Jesus body somewhere because clearly it has been uh, defiled in some way and when they get there and they, they peer in and they see the, graves, the grave clothes lying there they went away and, and John is careful to say in his gospel he defines himself or describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved John says that he believed so evidently even at that moment Peter just was not sure what was going on they were very confused the angel did, did a favor to the women. The angel said, do you remember how he used to say he was going to die and be, be raised from the dead? That's happened. And the women went, oh, but the angels didn't tell the men that. And Jesus appears to them later. He appears to two of them on the road to Emmaus and takes them through a careful study of the Old Testament scriptures. He appears to the 11 later on that first evening, Sunday evening in the upper room. He invites them to touch him a week or two or three later as he encounters them. He eats with them. He prepares, prepares breakfast for him, for them. He spent 40 days kind of emphasizing over and over again that he really was risen from the dead. That this was not a case of mass hysteria. They weren't mistaken. And it, it clearly takes them time to come to grips with what's happened. They've barely cottoned on to the idea that Jesus rose as he said he would rise. And, and I think it's fair to say in that first week or two or three, in those 40 days before he ascends to heaven, that what they arrived at is this man who taught us and we love so deeply, who died in such a horrible way, has been raised by the power of God back to life. And when Jesus goes to ascend to the Father on that 40th day, Acts chapter 1 tells the story. They even say, so Lord, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom. You're you're not going anywhere, right? You died and you were buried and you were raised so that you can continue to be with us and now the kingdom can come. And Jesus says, the timing of the kingdom is none of your business. It's my father's business. You do what I've told you to do. And he's taken up into the clouds away from them. What do they do with all of this information? Well, it's actually okay because Jesus had said in John chapter 16, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will Not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So Jesus says to them, I'm leaving. I'm going to send the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, but I am still your teacher. He is going to communicate to you what I wish for him to communicate to you. And praise God as as the life of the church went forward, once the Holy Spirit had come, as the gospel was preached, the Spirit increased their understanding about what the resurrection means. Until Paul comes to write 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 15, I invite you to turn there, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Spirit of God finally gave the church a comprehensive statement on the resurrection. Now, there is no way that we would have enough time in one morning, perhaps in one month, perhaps in one month. Knowing me, there's no way in one month we could examine 1 Corinthians 15 in detail. So we're not going to. What I want to do is point out five elements, five truths, five realities... That were presented by the resurrection. The first one of those is that if there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. First Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 12, Paul writes now, "If Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead in general, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. So there are some in the church in Corinth who are saying Jesus wasn't raised bodily from the dead. Or I'm sorry, they were saying there is no general resurrection of the dead. Eternal life in Christ is doesn't mean our bodies eternal life in christ means our souls and our spirits but not our bodies our bodies die our bodies are buried and dead is dead and that's it it's all gone well somebody says do do you believe that jesus was raised bodily from the dead and they say oh yeah 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 and paul says see that doesn't make any sense to say that Jesus, who is the forerunner, Jesus, who is the firstfruits, would be raised bodily from the dead, but we wouldn't doesn't make any sense. And if we're preaching that Jesus was raised from the dead and he wasn't raised from the dead, then everything we have preached is pointless. That's what the word vain means here in the New American Standard or other versions. It's empty. It's futile. It's pointless. It's meaningless. And not only is what we preach pointless and meaningless and futile, your faith is, is futile. It doesn't make any difference. Your, your faith is, is just a joke. If there is no resurrection, if Jesus is not raised, then there is no Christianity. Now, this is because we don't serve the memory of a teacher. We serve and follow and trust in a risen Lord, a living Savior, the one who confronted Paul on the Damascus Road the one who stood with Paul as he faced his trials, the one who appeared to John on the island of Patmos, the one who at this very moment is praying for and interceding for his people and bringing about the salvation of his elect. He is alive. Without his resurrection, we may as well shut the doors, go home, sell the building, get a six-pack of beer, and watch football because nothing else matters. The second thing that we see is that if there is no resurrection, then there is no end to sin and death, continuing on. Then at, at verse twenty, Paul writes, "But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man, that would be Adam, by came death, by a man Jesus also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die." so also in Christ all will be made alive. It's important that we understand the idea of categories. The Bible speaks in categories. And here we have two categories. All who are in Adam, all who are in Christ. All All who are in Adam are born dead. We are born separated from God. We are born under the judgment of God because of Adam's sin and our own sin nature. And we prove our own sin nature by our sins. But all who are in Christ will be made alive. And those are two different categories of people. And they, they kind of summarize out this way. All who are in Christ were once in Adam. Adam. But not all who are in Adam will be in Christ. How do you get to be in Adam? You're born. Natural birth. How do you get to be in Christ? It's a supernatural rebirth. Because of his life, because of his resurrection. In Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Why are we sinners, Adam? Why is there death? Adam, why is there hatred and war? Adam, why is there racism, violence toward women and children and the vulnerable? Adam, why is the world filled with lawbreakers? Adam, we inherit it. It's what we do. We've had about 6,000 years to stop sinning, to love one another, to, to live as God created us to live, we're not there. At the very least, everyone on the face of the earth would have to say, we are not there. And, and frankly, being a cynic, I believe we're getting worse. I believe the further we get from creation and from the life of Christ, the worse we get. I don't think we're getting better. We're getting worse. But all in Christ will live. All who are in Christ because of a supernatural rebirth will live. The Bible teaches that when we're born again in the Lord Jesus, who is the risen Lord and Savior, we become a different kind of person. We become a new creation. Only Jesus' resurrection reverses the fall and takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and puts us into the kingdom of light. Only new life in Christ can free us from the power of and the presence, and the penalty of sin. Only new life in Christ can free us from the eternal uh, imprisonment of death and give us life that is eternal and unending. By His grace and by His mercy, those effects even begin now. Now We have to wait until we die and are resurrected for the overwhelming majority of those benefits to be, to be granted to us. But we even begin to see that now. As we come into a place of hating our sin more and more, and of loving the Lord Jesus more and more, and showing compassion to others more and more. The adulterous become virtuous. Liars become truth-tellers. Addicts are freed from their addictions. The suicidal find hope. Thieves become givers. Racists become lovers. Lovers. Without the resurrection of Christ, that's not possible. If there's no resurrection, there is no end to sin and death. A third, if there is no resurrection, then there is no kingdom. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five through 28 says, For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death for he has put all things for he god has put all things into subjection under his jesus feet but when he says all things are put into subjection, it is evident that God is accepted who put all things in subjected to Christ into subjection to Christ. When all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son himself also will be subjected to God who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. We can say with absolute confidence that Jesus is doing at least two things right now. One, he is interceding for his people nonstop. Hebrews 7 and Romans 8 tell us that. And second, he is actively bringing all things into subjection to himself. That doesn't mean all things in big, broad ways. That means every last atomic particle that was created. That means every last living thing. That means every last human being. Does that mean that salvation is universal? No, because bringing all things into subjection into Christ means dividing out those who are wicked from those who are righteous in Christ, so that the wicked go to punishment, the righteous go to eternal life. And when that has happened in its totality, all of mankind now is in its proper place. Well, obviously, if Jesus had died on that rocky hilltop 2,000 years ago and then his body rotted to dust in, in the tomb, or as some would say, rotted on the cross, fell to pieces, and was eaten by dogs, then we can forget every promise the Bible makes about the kingdom of God. If there is no living Christ, then there is no living Lord. There is no one to reign, and there is no one to bring all things into subjection. If Jesus rotted away... If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then the devil won. And the devil is God. And God is the rebel against the devil's kingdom. And the devil put God down. It's that blunt. It's that clear. But because Jesus did rise from the dead, because he is living and alive, he is reigning over all things, including his enemies, and the Father has placed everything into subjection to him, and Jesus is actively bringing all of those things into subjection to him now. Now somebody might say, if he has the power to do that, if that's what he's doing, then why doesn't he just do it all now and bring it into all the evil that we see? And the answer is mercy. The answer is mercy. What if the Lord Jesus had brought everything into subjection and put an end to all things before you were saved? And then you faced eternal hell? Scripture tells us that God is patient. God is waiting for the fullness of his people to come in. And so he endures the wicked for the sake of his own. The fourth thing that we see is that without the resurrection, there is no reason for holiness. Verse 30, Paul asks, Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection, if Jesus Christ is not alive, then this world is all there is. What you can see and feel and taste and touch is all there is. There is no spiritual realm. There is no life to come. There is nothing but this life. And when you die, you're dead. John Lennon saying, imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us above-us-only sky, imagine all the people living for today. I don't have to imagine all the people living for today. That's the way our world lives, is for today. This past week, Linda and I accompanied a woman that we know to court. She had a civil issue coming up, and she wanted some moral support, so we went with her. While we were waiting for her case to be called, they were finishing up criminal cases, and, and it was this one, and that one, and this one, and that one, and it's all very interesting, and it's kind of boring. It's not TV. And they, they call a case, and a young woman, I don't know, she looked like she might have been in, in her very early 20s, maybe even 18 or 19, is called up, and she's going to be arraigned for a crime. So a charge has been brought. She's brought before a judge. The charges are read. The judge says, yes, we'll hold you for this crime. She sat down, and the county attorney announced that they had done a drug test on her, and she was, an, she was under the, the influence of methamphetamine there in court. She can't plead guilty or not guilty under the influence. And so the judge says, I'm going to incarcerate you. You're here until there's no more drugs in your system, whether that's tomorrow or Monday or when. And he moved her over to the jury box where they hold those people, and eventually the bailiff came in and they took her off to jail. And, and at least Thursday night and Friday, she was in an orange jumpsuit. Why? Because she believed John Lennon. Imagine all the people living for today live for the moment. She couldn't even live for the next week. She couldn't even say, I won't do anything today because then I'll get in trouble. See, we don't have to imagine what it means to live for today. If there's no resurrection, there's no need for holiness. Go for it. But if there is a resurrection, if there is a resurrected Lord, then holiness is not an option because there is a hell and there is a heaven. The Bible commands those who are in Christ Jesus to be sober minded and stop sinning. Verse 33 and verse 34 do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. This is speaking to Christians, by the way. This idea that you can be a faithful, born-again Christian and all of your friends be non-Christians and you can hang around with them and you won't be affected by them is wrong. That bad company will corrupt you. The Bible doesn't say don't be friends with non-Christians. But if if you're friends with non-Christians to the point where that's the influence in your life and they're the ones who are shaping your life and their peer pressure is the peer pressure affecting you, you will be corrupted. And then he says in verse 34, Become sober-minded as you ought to and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. For some have no knowledge of God. I, I don't know if he's saying for some people doing this are not Christians or if what he's saying is so, some of you have got such a, a bare understanding of what it means to be a Christian that you don't know God. Be sober-minded. Stop sinning. Stop living for today. Live for the eternity to come. Now just to be clear, no one is saved By stopping sinning. Nobody is saved because they decide, I'm going to go ahead and be sober-minded. Salvation is by grace and through faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is only possible because he is alive to save us. And when he saves us, he transforms us so that growing in holiness becomes both possible and, and to some degree inevitable. Paul isn't telling non-Christians here how to live like Christians. He's telling Christians, stop living like non-Christians. The final thing that we see toward the end of the chapter is that if there is no resurrection, there is no hope. Beginning at verse 50, I'm sorry, beginning at, uh, yeah, verse 50 The scripture says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortality then will come about the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O oh, death where is your victory O oh, death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What is our hope ultimately? Our hope is that is that death would not be able to hold us. Our hope is is that the the, the, the people that we know who have died in Christ would be restored to us. Our hope is that our own death as it comes running at us like a train down the track would not be the last thing of life. That's our hope. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about those who are held in bondage because of the fear of death. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead and death continues to hold him, it will hold you. It will never give you up. But because Jesus rose from the dead, he's put an end to sin. He's ended its power and its penalty and he is removing its presence from our lives and in the resurrection there will be no presence of sin in our lives jesus has has canceled out death the old puritan preacher john owen preached a, a sermon called the death of death in the death of christ and that's ultimately the death that, that's there in fact he even says the final enemy to be subjected will be death verse 26 Death itself is thrown into hell. Now, think about that. Death itself is thrown into hell. Death and hell are different. Death itself will be utterly destroyed. Now, he says not every Christian is going to, be, uh, is going to die. Verse 51, we will not all sleep. We will not all die. And Paul is looking forward on a daily basis to, to the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus comes and those who are alive in Christ are transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And Lord, if you're hearing me now, you can come anytime. That would be okay with me. But the truth is, for the last 2,000 years, those who are in Christ have died. And the likelihood is that we will follow them. likelihood is that a tomb is prepared for us. And that we will step into that tomb. but we will be called out of that tomb like Lazarus was. You remember in John 11, Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus. He's talked with Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, and they take him to the tomb and the people are there and they're weeping. Lazarus has been dead four or five days by that point, four days. Jesus weeps for their grief. And then he just says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of this tomb. He's still wrapped up kind of wiggles his way out. Freaks everybody out. Jesus has to say, well, unwrap him. What did Lazarus see when they unwrapped the shroud and then took that face cloth off? What did he see? He saw his world. He saw his sisters like he'd seen them just a few days before. He saw his friends. He saw his neighbors. He could look off and maybe see the 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 spires of the temple off over the Mount of Olives, they were in Bethany or just outside of Bethany. He could look east and maybe see the, the ribbon of the Jordan River 15 miles away. Lazarus opened his eyes and saw everything he'd always known. Here's where it changes for you, Christian. You will open your eyes and see what you've never known. You won't open your eyes to see familiar places. You won't open your eyes and say, what am I doing back here? you'll open your eyes to see things that are unimaginable. Things that we cannot begin to describe. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. As we bring this home, we know that we're moving closer to physical death every day. Unless Jesus returns first, we will all close our eyes in death. But because of Jesus' resurrection... Our tombs won't be able to hold us. And we won't wait four days like Lazarus did. For us, it will be an immediate process of resurrection. We will close our eyes in death and immediately open them in life. And we will then wait with the Lord Jesus in heaven until the resurrection of our bodies. But we will be with him knowing him and being known by him. So death is no longer a terrible punishment for sin. Death is now a doorway to life. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, our faith is purposeful and meaningful. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, sin and death have been fatally wounded. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, the kingdom of God will come in all of its power and glory. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we can live in holiness and peace. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have hoped that the worst possible outcome, which is death, only leads home to our Savior. Think about these words from the resurrection hymn that we sang at the start of the service. We are one with the Father, ancient of days, through the Spirit who clothes faith with certainty, honor and blessing, Glory and praise to the King crowned with power and authority and we are raised with Him. Death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered and we shall reign with Him for He lives. Christ is risen from the dead. Father, we praise You for this truth. We ask that You would pierce our hearts with it and convince us of it as never before our world argues against the resurrection of jesus christ a million different ways and we are saturated with all of those arguments and all of those denials so we need to keep coming back to this truth that jesus conquered death jesus is risen from the dead we serve a risen savior And for that, this morning, we give you thanks. And in your holy name we pray. Amen.